I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. Uh, my guest today is Bob Garmong, who is a former lecturer at Dongbei University of Finance and Economics in China and is now a consultant on education and immigration in, uh, in China. Uh, you told me the city and I can't remember it. Uh, thanks for coming on, Bob. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's a tiny little city of less than a million people. Oh, that it, less than a million is tiny in China. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's like the fiftieth on the list of Chinese cities. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, however, it my... does have three thousand years of history. So if I walk out my front door, I can walk five minutes to a park where there's a battlement that was constructed in the thirteen hundreds. Wow. So, well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming here. to you from a little tiny town in uh, in Virginia that has maybe 40 people. <laughs> so it's a little different. But so the first thing I'm going to ask, you know, I'm going to talk to you about what's going on in China and your experience there and, and, and what you've learned about Chinese society and, and specifically where it's headed in the current environment. But let's start mm -hmm. at the beginning. How it what brought you to China? How is it that you came there? <laughs> well, um, I was basically a failed academic. Uh, well, you were and, in the adjunct track. I mean, this is not an unusual thing, by the way. That that it, right, right, right. There's a lot of. I mean, it's one of the big stories of academia in the last 10, 20 years. We were all told. I know you and I were, were in college together. We were told at the time, oh, it's going to be great. All the old baby boomers are going to retire. There are going to be all these jobs for you that are coming up. And then what actually happened is. The jobs were jobs for we were lured into a honey trap. Yes. And the jobs ended up being, well, you get an adjunct <laughs> job where you get no pay, no security, no benefits, and you can get fired. And it basically, you know, next semester you can be out on the streets and be fired. And right. the tenure track positions are few and far between and are, are dwindling in a way, in, a way in, in, in at least in the humanities. Right. They can hire three adjuncts for the what they pay one tenured a professor. So why would anyone hire a tenured professor anymore? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yes, I, I was on the adjunct treadmill for quite some time, including uh, I actually have a published article on my time teaching at the Lunenburg Minimum Security uh, Prison in Virginia, uh, which uh, it was. I never thought I would go to prison for philosophy in the United <laughs> States, but uh, so I, I happened to have a contact who knew people in the Chinese higher education field, and that person broadcast my CV to a hundred different universities, and I managed to get uh, a, a really what for Chinese academia was truly a plum job at Dongbei University of Finance and Economics, teaching business ethics, which China, China sorely needs, yes. and uh, European civilization. And even occasionally they would throw me a bone and let me teach a straight up philosophy class. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching things like the moral foundations of capitalism at a Chinese government run university. So. <laughs> I mean, you know, money to the side. The the pure irony was fuel enough for me. <laughs> and it, it really was symptomatic of a time when, you know, for the last couple of decades, when China was so eager for integration with the West, for ideas coming That's in right. from the West, for figuring out That's what right. is it the West has been doing that we need to learn from. 
I came here in 2009, just in the wake of the Beijing Olympics. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they had made a big demonstration of opening up. In order to get the Olympics in the first place, they had to promise all sorts of things about uh, civil rights and and, uh, unimprisoning dissidents and so on that then they began slowly ratcheting back shortly after I came here. Uh, But at that time, yes, it was absolutely opening up, and it was very definitely on a path, what seemed like a path toward greater and greater liberty, liberalism, in, in my sense of liberalism, freedom, intellectual freedom, and uh, economic freedom. And that, then, unfortunately, I think the, the economic catastrophe in the West mm, had terrible mm. impact on China. Not so much in the economic sphere, but in their own idea of themselves, because suddenly the United States was seen to be stumbling and China relatively, at least on the surface, weathered it well. And so they began to see themselves as not so much needing us foreign devils anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they re- reclaimed their kind of rightful position as the middle kingdom in some ways. And that brings me to what I – mean, let's talk a little bit then about what's going on now because that's my sense too that, that there was the idea that the American model or the Western model was something they needed to emulate. And now there's more the idea that, oh, no, no, we don't need that. We don't need to take any lessons from that. Uh, and right. we're going to go back in, in a different direction. And now you have under Xi Jinping, you have – you know he's gotten rid of the sort of rule by committee that they had where there, no one person was supremely powerful, and now he's supremely powerful. So it's one-man mm-hmm. rule back at the top levels of the Communist Party. He's bringing back the cult of personality. I saw somebody was measuring um, what they were measuring mentions of Xi in the newspapers and, mag- and, and in the media in China, and it, there's this upward graph, this you know, steeply seep, upward graph. And, of course, that's, that's right. not a coincidence. That's happening because people are being told to do it. And uh, things like Xi Jinping thought, he has a thought that's named after him, like Mao Zedong thought. Whatever it is, it, no one can quite figure out what it is. <laughs> exactly. By the way, um, if I can interrupt, just pet peeve, yeah. it's really pronounced Xi, but G is totally wrong. Oh, okay. That actually means chicken in Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 Which okay. maybe I should adopt. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate the correction. I mean, I, I, I sort of feel free to mispronounce French words, but, um, you know, just just to just to just to irk the French. But uh, I'll try to be a little more careful. OK, so it's it's more like Xi Jinping. Right. OK, mm-hmm. I'll try to get that uh, a little more. You're in good company, though. I've constantly swear at the uh, mo- uh, the announcers and moderators on all the major networks. <laughs> Well, who are paid, I'm sure, a whole lot more than you are. <laughs> Chinese you know, words. It's, it's the thing, though, that you know we're talking about the Olympics. It's the one thing I always admire about Bob Costas. And, you know, people think he's a little smug and all that, but the one thing he did is he actually went out and memorized how to pro- properly pronounce the names of all these obscure right. athletes from all these different countries, and he would know mm-hmm. how to pronounce the names. And you know, that's a, that's a skill. That's a that's, uh, and there's deep respect in that, which yeah, is yeah. which is why it does kind of become a pet peeve of mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so you can edit this part out. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. I'll keep. I might, I'll probably keep this in. Um, 
<laughs> anyway, so Xi Jinping is is coming back and giving this sort of uh, cult of personality, and he has his own thought named after him, and it's much more sort of almost nostalgically harkening back to the old-fashioned communism of Mao. It is and it isn't. Um, and now, you know, what brought me to China in the first place, you know, I, I could have gone other places. I, I wasn't that hard up. Um, but China seemed at the time to have tremendous promise. There's a lack of a Christian heritage. There's a lack of that kind of notion of sacrifice and altruism. There's a tremendous idea of, of productiveness and uh, enterprising, I, I don't want to use the, name, the word capitalism for it, but enterprising business entrepreneurship and yeah, so on. I think on. entrepreneurialism would maybe be the term, that it, it's an enterprising people who are best. used to forming businesses and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's a of course, a complete lack of political correctness here, which is quite refreshing, as we've we've discussed in a previous conversation. And there's a real spirit of innovation in China. So it's not true communism that they're trying to bring back. But it is those aspects of Maoism uh, that were the totalitarianism, and the cult of personality are really coming back. So the, the most, I think, emblematic thing was when Xi Jinping in the last People's Congress got himself uh, a, 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 the real two plums. Number one, as you mentioned, Xi Jinping thought <laughs> has now been enshrined in the constitution of China. So it's now unconstitutional to disagree with Xi Jinping, although, as we can discuss later, it's, there's no clear definition of what the hell that actually means. And number two, previously there had been a term limit. So the, the Chinese premier serves for a five-year term mm -hmm. and then a second five-year term. And then it was capped. You were out after 10 years. He got that eliminated, so he will be the emperor for life, really. And, and as I understand the system, that there's usually this like council of ten people at the top, and there's always another person sort of waiting in the wings to take over power next. And he sort of that's right. He got that council of ten replaced with basically his yes men, and retainers, and people who were not competition for him. That's right, and they would they would typically. Um, there were always, of course, factions. You know, in the U.S., we have our political parties. In China, those are all repressed. But everybody, and they were more in personal terms. You know, you're in the Hu Jintao faction, right. or you're in this or that faction. And in the past, they would deliberately put one person from the other faction on that council so that there was at least some element of power sharing and that has been completely eliminated so yes that has been a radical radical change from and that's been the that that, that old system has been the case since 1970s 1979 right was when mm -hmm. Deng Xiaoping took power and well, that's what I have to ask which is 
are the Chinese crazy? Because you know they put the system in place because of the experience with Mao, because of the experience of having one guy who was so supreme that he had this unaccountable power. And you know, this is something I noticed about the history of, of communism in Russia uh, after Stalin, is that mm -hmm. the first people to rebel against totalitarianism were not the, the, the poor oppressed dissidents. The first people to want to back off from, total, from full totalitarianism were the party elites. Because under you know under Stalin, if you were a party elite, that didn't protect you from getting sent to the gulag, or being executed, or right. you know having to confess and then be right. executed. And the same thing under Mao, being a party elite, you know Deng Xiaoping wasn't he sent off to work in a factory for a while, and you know sent into exile, and and people were punished and killed mm -hmm. and, and reprisals on them, even when they were among the elites. So the first thing the elite does as the first sign of opening up is they say, well we're going to back off from full totalitarianism keep one overarching guy with all the power to protect us from that power. Mm. And then it becomes something that then spreads out from there. So right. So we'll keep the filibuster in the Senate because although we have power today, you might have power tomorrow exactly. and we'll want it then. Right, right. So so uh, why why are they willing to let this happen again? Is it just because it's so long in the past they don't remember it? Oh, there. First of all, the Chinese forget nothing. So, uh, <laughs> put that idea out of your head. Um, I mean, they're still reliving the Nanjing massacre. So, no. Uh, however, and, and there are a bunch of different ideas there. Number one, one key thing about the Chai Coms, even in the days of communism. And by the way, another pet peeve of mine. I do not regard China as a communist country, although it's ruled by the Communist Party. You, you, uh, you understand that. It's, it, it is, technically it's fascism, not communism. Uh, they don't like that word. But, uh, but even when it was communist, they always had a different policy from the Stalinists. And in the history of the Chinese Communist Party, when you fell out of power, you went into house arrest, you got spirited away. There was only one person, Lin Biao, who was likely killed. Uh, and there were a couple who were killed, not by party apparatchiks, but by the, uh, the Red Guards during the, uh, the, the, the uh, troubles in the 60s. And, and that was shocking and horrifying, and that really ended the, uh, the, the Cultural Revolution. So they always had a much smarter policy than Stalin did, which was a soft landing for your opposition. I see. They just got pushed out of power uh, or maybe exiled off to some little town somewhere. Typically, typically. Yeah. Right. It, it, of course, wasn't universal, but uh, but yes. So they, they were smarter about that sort of thing. So that's one key element. The other thing is that they actually made very, very careful study of the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, it didn't escape their attention that the other main communist power of the world had lost power and, and basically collapsed. So during the 1990s, there was a major industry of Chinese academicians under government support going to government-run think tanks. And by the way, Beijing has more think tanks than the entire rest of the world combined. 
You just never hear about them because they're all government sponsored and secret. And that's so they, they do work that goes within the government and not out to the public. That's right. It's not you, you don't get to publish those things, but uh, they, they are there and they are very, very actively studying. And the main lesson that they drew from the fall of the Soviet Union was that Gorbachev made the key mistake of opening up when he allowed rival factions to publicly oppose his policies as the downfall of the Soviet Union. So from that moment forward, of course, they'd already had Tiananmen Square in 1989, so they already had this, this idea of that we must have supreme power. Mm-hmm. But from, from 1991 forward, the idea of any real opposition to the Communist Party was absolutely dead. It was not possible in this country. So they actually would, would throw your question back at you and say, no, we're the true students of history because we realize once you open up, then you cause chaos. And Xi Jinping came in with a, a couple of key problems. One big problem was corruption. And that's, that, of course, right? You, you've got, we see it in the United States with Solyndra and so on. And we have so, such a negligible government component of our economy compared to the Chinese. Right. So here, corruption is absolutely rampant, it's endemic, it's, it's every adjective that you can throw at it. And she saw that as the primary threat to Communist Party control in China. And so he saw his first mandate as getting control over the Communist Party um, elites all the way down to the local governments. And there's, a, there's an old saying in China, which is one of my favorites. It goes back to imperial days. The mountains are high and the emperor is far away. <laughs> which represents the idea that whatever the emperor may say in, in you know, whatever great policy he may have in mind, we locals are going to do whatever we care to do. And that has always been the case in China. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to eliminate that as much as he possibly could. So and, a lot of his consolidation of power That's came not just a, a Chinese idea because, you know, the, one of the cases made for the French monarchy, for, for an absolute monarch, was you have to have a strong monarchy so that, so that the monarch is strong enough and powerful enough to control all the other government officials and keep them in line. That's right. That's right. And that's sort of standard um, for, a, for a society built, steeped in corruption and steeped in sort of unaccountable power. How do you get accountability? Well, one way is you can create a democratic system with a free press and where, where you have people who are able to check the power of the elites and criticize the elites. But the other way is, no, 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 we don't need to what do that. What kind of crazy talk is that? <laughs> But you know, the other alternative to that is, no, you make one guy so powerful that he's going to, on behalf of the people, he's going to use his power to control the elites. And that's, where, that's what that's the right. democracy. And still in China to this day, if people are upset about their government, typically their view is that it's the local guy who's the problem. If only the people in Beijing knew what this bastard was doing, 
they would fix it. And they still will trek to Beijing to file their protests and then maybe never go home again. <laughs> but th there's still that idea that, yeah, the, the, the government in Beijing, they really care about me. It's my local guy who's skimming the money for the roads and so uh, you know, putting it in his pocket and so on. So, yeah, there's that, definitely that idea that, the, that we need uh, an iron strong central government in order to keep the locals in check. So, and also there's an idea in China that the number one value is stability. We do not want and we absolutely fear chaos. And again that in 2009, 2008, they looked at the United States and saw chaos. They look at the United States today and see chaos. Right. And so it allows the Chinese then to turn away from this idea that we should emulate the West in any way and say we need more state control, more repression, more stability from the top. Well, I think I kind of understand that historically because, you know, we think of China as being this unchanging system. But, you know, if you look back, <laughs> you know, prior to 1949, it was chaos for, for quite some time. And it's almost like they have a... Their obsession with stability is this pathological fear of returning to that point of being divided and chaotic and weak as they see it. That's right. And, and um, th we have the immediate history since 1842 with the first opium war. But even going back throughout history, China has always, from the very first dynasties, has always had this sort of and again, I think this is almost a physical law. You've got this intense control that then becomes corrupt and then reaches a tipping point when you get true chaos and then all hell breaks loose. Mm -hmm. So they really don't want that to happen. If there's a way to avoid that tipping point, of course, when the tipping point comes, then everybody's in the streets and the dynasty is overthrown and <laughs> somebody comes in with what they call the mandate of heaven yeah yeah to uh, you know throw out the old guys but that so that's not just the last 150 years it goes all the way back thousands of years yeah. through chinese history well and that, that's fascinating to me because you know we were talking offline before the recording began about how American conservatism or the American right is unusual because it's conservative, but it's going back to a pro-freedom position. And really, you know, the American Revolution was this strange thing of a revolution made by people who were trying to preserve the existing order as they saw it. And right. you know, they, they were fighting for the rights of Englishmen and for the, you know, the, the settlement of that Locke talked about in, in the, the Glorious Revolution. So they were trying to preserve the, what they saw as the existing system. And that really comes from the fact, you know, we were able to do that because, especially in America, you know, every one of the colonies had its own government that had been operating for up to 100 years. Uh, and I think Virginia has uh, the... Uh, uh, the House of Burgesses, as it was called, now the House of Delegates, I think is one of the oldest existing, like the third oldest continuously existing uh, legislative body in the world, right? So we right. from since 1600 and something, we've had 
the, you know, a government where the people were, were managing their own affairs. So you had this sense that we, we've done this. This is traditional. We know how this works. We can keep on doing that. Whereas a lot right. of other places, the problem is they have two concepts. There's, there's control or chaos. And there's the idea That's of right. how you how people manage their own affairs. They just don't have the experience with it. And they don't know what it means to, to live like that. That's right. That's right. And and um, in China, it's exactly that way. And so there was always this notion of keeping your blinders on, you know, keeping your lane. You don't you don't mess with the local authority. You don't challenge anybody. You stay with your job. You do it the best you can. If you can. If you can't, then, well, it's not my fault, it's that guy's fault, but you just don't look beyond your own lane. And so people are, are immensely tolerant, even of things that, you know, you get in a taxi here, and if the cabbie finds out you speak Chinese, you'll get an earful about whatever their particular complaint is of the day, but... Would they want a change in the government? Absolutely not. <sighs> Do they, uh, what are their feelings about our current government? They love Xi Jinping. They may hate this or that or the other thing. And they love it, of course, when I criticize the U.S. government. <laughs> but they're not, because it's not my business. Right? I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm going to study hard work hard, and the rest is somebody else's department, and I hope they don't screw it up. <laughs> so the th irony of this, though, is that you talked about how they, they've decided their big lesson of the fall of the Soviet Union is don't open up. But on the other hand, opening up is what they've been doing for the, you know, since 1978, 1979. And it's been, in many ways, it's been the key to their success. So the whole question here is, you know, they're sort of flush with this success and the sense of power, and we're we're becoming equal to and stronger than the West and stronger than the United States. But at the same time, they're changing course back against <laughs> the thing that made them powerful, the integration with the West and the opening up of more freedom. That's absolutely correct. And unfortunately, they have is that the literal communist system didn't work. So they're not going to go back to actual communism. But what they've accepted as the replacement for that is basically a state-run fascist economy where you have profits and losses and even state-owned enterprises have to make a profit but it's heavily dominated by the government. In, they inject huge amounts of money into the system. The banking system is entirely government-run. Mm -hmm. So there are, there, there are no such things as private banks in China, as far as I'm aware of. They're all state-owned enterprises. I remember hearing, though, that there actually are private banks that are done sort of on the sort of black market. On the down market, yes. And there were all sorts yeah. of problems with trying to get trying to figure out what was going on with that. You'd have people loaning money sort of on the side. Well, I, I have a personal story about that. <laughs> <laughs> when we went to buy a car about four or five years ago now, uh, you, you can get a car loan 
And most people just pay cash, but, but we got a loan. But there's a kind of lag time, and I didn't quite understand the process entirely, but whatever is going on there, there's a lag time between when you get your loan approved. It's not like in the States where you walk into the dealership and they shuffle you from guy to guy and you drive home in your new car. We had to get a loan from the bank, but then to execute that loan, we had to have a sort of sub loan from a private guy who then secured our loan with the bank and then we could go get the car a month later or something. It was a long process. It was crazy. Well, that guy was not a, a true bank. He was a little private guy. And when we paid off our loan, we were supposed to get back the deposit we put down as security for our loan. Well, we about six months before our deposit was due, they had made a bunch of other bad loans. And so as it was coming due and was supposed to come back to us, our loan was being fully paid off and so on, we got an invitation that we could get a free color TV in lieu of the $500 or whatever it was that we'd put down as a deposit on this loan. And my wife, of course, said, that's ridiculous. We don't want a color TV. And the person on the phone from this company said, listen to me, you really want to take the TV. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise you're not getting anything at all. Later, they were closed. Yeah. <laughs> so they had made one of their bad loans was to a TV reseller. So they got a whole boatload of TVs and no money. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if we hadn't taken the TV, we weren't getting the cash back. Right. So, yeah, there is this huge black market in finance. And again, going back to our, our bigger topics, this is where you get with government control, right? Mm -hmm. If you want, on the one hand, government control, on the other hand, a vibrant economy, what do you have? You've got the gray or black market that fills in the gaps where the government isn't going to do it. So those, are, those things are rampant over here. Another example, if you want to invest money, there are no mutual funds in China that I'm aware of. The banks pay higher than the US, like 3% interest, but lower than inflation. Mm -hmm. The stock market is completely rigged and, and uh, completely lacks transparency of any kind. You don't want to go there. So what do you do? There are these off the books investments that are paying eight, nine, 10%, and you have no idea what they're actually investing in. They're run through the bank, but not by the bank. They're gray market. So the bankers themselves are offering these little side investments. Many of them are basically Ponzi schemes, yeah. but you don't have the opportunity to invest in the way that you would in the US, so what do you do? If you wanna make a return on investment, you go with the gray guys. <laughs> the gray guys, I like that. Well, that, that brings up a question, because I think you know, there's this sense in America, and you know, um, 
who's a uh, uh, Friedman uh, uh, in the, the New York Times. Uh, for some reason, I can't remember his first name. Tom Friedman. Tom Friedman. Yeah, Tom, yeah. Tom Friedman, New York <laughs> Times. Is Generally, sort of a... astute commentator on China in some ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. He can be really brilliant, but he also has this like fascination with the idea that, oh, they're all engineers who are running it. And they're, they're you know, that, that they – he has almost like this envy for what if we elites here in America had the power just to impose what we see as the, the good and right solution. Right. And right, absolutely. there's this mythologizing of the Chinese system as being very efficient and very powerful and the idea they're going to overcome us, they're going to overtake us any day now. And, you know, I sort of see that as being a little short of the reality of how chaotic <laughs> it, it, you know, it's sort of like total control. You might say that. Total yes. control in theory and a lot of chaos and black market and things that are happening off the books in practice. Absolutely, yes. And and Tom Freeman suffers from the fact that when he comes here, he's a foreign dignitary. Right. Right. So he, 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 he comes to Hong, Hong Kong and Shenzhen, and they escort him through the Potemkin villages, yeah. which, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually being inappropriately flipped because these are real things. The, the Shenzhen subway system is outstanding um you know the, many of the things he remarks on are in fact legitimately good but he's seeing and one side of things exactly and it's a country of 1.4 or 5 billion people by now so yeah you can put together some really impressive things to look at and i i hear this and i have to confess when i came here I was very open to the idea that the U.S. is in chaos. We've got rampant political correctness and we've got rampant corruption. And maybe China has something going on that, you know, okay, philosophically, I don't like it in some ways, but maybe their political system has something going for it. However, I don't know if I should be happy or unhappy that my philosophical priors, as they say, have been reinforced in my time here. <clears throat> what we see in China is, in fact, a, a remarkable thing. I mean, they have managed to pull off a, a true miracle in holding this system together, and they really have. Standards of living are growing, and they have grown since I've been here. Incontestably, and I'm not talking about GDP numbers, which are questionable, and all those kinds of things. You see, people's lives are definitely getting better year on year. However, there's incredible inefficiency in this country because of the system. Huge, of course, and of course, the notorious ghost towns where they build these, you know, acres and acres of uh, high-rise towers. I used to drive to work every day and about a two kilometer stretch, like what's that, a mile and a half or so, was this vast, beautiful, high-end, completely empty condo development. (laughs) And the whole front row were these three-story villas that should be selling for like three quarters of a million dollars. And not a light was on. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was completely wasted. So those, of course, are notorious. But what, what's not so notorious is 
just right outside this window, there's a tower on top of a, a gorgeous shopping mall that would be the envy of any American city, but the entire tower is empty, mm. 25, mm. 30 stories, empty. Every uh, 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 high-rise uh, uh, apartment building, condo building, I forget my English sometimes on these things where I don't speak them often. Uh, uh, some of the, these high-rise condo buildings, the entire ground floor is a single shop. So huge, huge inefficiency. Huge uh, hotel construction, completely unused, empty. So there's that. Then there's also just the, the, the minor inefficiency. So for example, uh, just general business practices. So every Chinese business leader is expected to have a, what they call a little secretary ah. who does no actual work, but she's paid on the company payroll. And you can guess what she yeah, her what, real job is. Yeah. And if he doesn't have one, that's like shameful. <laughs> who are you that you don't, you, you can't have a 25 year old little secretary. Um, and even just on the factory level, I, I, when I first came to China, I had a friend who was a, a, a Swedish guy, was a, a business consultant and an engineer. And he was doing work in a factory in Dalian. And he noticed just as an ancillary thing, not part of his actual work, that they had arranged their production line so that the main line was this giant machine that vented the heat duct straight into the air conditioning intake. <laughs> so they were wasting tens of thousands of dollars a year on you know, wasted air conditioning, breakdowns in their air conditioning system, and it was a, a, a heat-sensitive process, so they had to have working AC. And he brought this to their attention, and the factory manager said, it's working well enough. <laughs> Who cares? Right? Because they're protected by their government contact and connections. There's no competition, so they don't have to care about that. Um, so it's just, it, it's a really inefficient system. There are some great things about China. The number one thing that keeps China afloat, in my opinion, is the lack of a social safety net, which a lot of people want here, mm -hmm. but that makes for relative mobility of capital and uh, employment. You don't go home and collect unemployment for six months. Yeah. You go find where the next factory is hiring people. And so, for example, where I lived in Dalian, in about a five-year period, lost a quarter of its population because the economy was, was slumping. So people would either go home or go to other parts of China where there were jobs. In the U.S., you don't have that mobility of labor. Right. The, the, or the, the labor that has to be mobile. <laughs> so you, in That's other words, right. in, in the U.S., you get the people still in uh, West Virginia waiting for the coal mines to reopen or still in Pennsylvania waiting for the steel mills to reopen. That's right. That's right. And there, there are different 
I, I don't want to make, paint it as a great system. Uh, of course, there, there are problems with that, and there are different barriers to mobility, for example, the housing prices. But uh, here, in general, you can have massive mobility where, right, and if the U.S. were China, West Virginia would be empty. Right. Well, so and that's economically much more efficient than the U.S. way of doing things. Yeah. So one one impression I have with China is that you know they've had this tremendous growth. It looks tremendous partly because they're going from such a such a small base that the they were so crushed by Mao and the, you know the the Great Leap Forward and the, and the Cultural Revolution. They were crushed to such a, a low level that just lifting the boot off their necks allows them to you know to to do this tremendous growth but at the same time if you look at the if their efficiency and and the level at which they're operating relative to the west you know if it's 1.5 billion people who have come up to a certain level but they're not at the same level as europe or the, or the west that's right the, the per capita economy is certainly not in any competition with what we're aware of. However, I do have to say that in in fact, things have improved here tremendously economically. So the middle class in China lives really well. And if you walk across the street from here to the shopping mall, you'll see young, beautifully dressed people and I don't know if they're actually buying the Rolexes in the Rolex shop, but they're sure looking at them, and and there really, there there truly is real prosperity here. There is still crushing poverty. It's nothing like the poverty in other parts of the country, though. I've been to India a few times. I've been to Vietnam. I've been to Thailand, and those places have real poverty that truly does not exist in China today. Hmm. So I don't want to minimize, even as I talk about the inefficiencies, I don't want to minimize what they have accomplished. So, so the whole question, though, is can they maintain this while going back to Mao on the political level? Well, and I do think that there are signs that that's not, they, they've held it together far longer than I thought they would. I have, uh, I, I, and I have to own up to the fact that I have been predicting for five years now imminent collapse <laughs> in the Chinese economy. And, you know, I'm a stopped clock. Someday I'll be correct. But I do think that recent events have shown that there's a real fragility. And they're trying to do the impossible. They're trying to move forward toward a middle-class economy, an information economy. They're pushing their internet services, you know, WeChat, Alibaba, all these things, while at the same time maintaining this increasingly crushing repression of ideas. And I don't think you can hold that together forever. So, no. And I think the cracks are starting to show. I'd like to end, though, on the thing is on a more positive note, which is what are the things you find? I mean, obviously, you found things to love in China and you've gotten married in China. So you found people to love there, too. And uh, so what is it you find the most positive and promising things, not just politically, but culturally about China? Right, right, right. Uh, 
The Chinese people in general uh, have a, a real look to the future, mm-hmm. and uh, despite all the uh, all the history that we've talked about, they really are looking for their next best thing. It's an increasingly innovative country, and in some ways, they have the benefit of not being the early adopters. So, you know, we have our crumbling roads and and our horrible airports and so on. Well, China doesn't have those things. Yeah, I've heard they do things like leapfrog straight to cell phones and not have to build all the landline capacity. That's right. There are huge areas where you can't get a landline. So there's tremendous um, innovation, tremendous opportunity here. And uh, I have had a great time here, and, and I see tremendous business opportunities still. I, there, there's a dark cloud over that now that wasn't there before. But And also, I, I, maybe we can end with one key thing, which I think is an intangible, but it's absolutely crucial, and that is, China and the U.S. share one thing in common, and that is an incredible sense of national pride and a kind of exalted sense of their place in the world. Yeah, sort of a manifest destiny. Very much so, yeah. And they, you know, for 150 years, like if if you imagine an old Charles Atlas ad where the kid's getting sand kicked in his face and then he buffs up. Well, imagine that in reverse. He was the buff guy and then goes to getting sand kicked in his face. Understandably, they had a really, really bad 150 years of strong and powerful and important. And I think that that has its downsides, of course, but I also think it's a tremendously positive thing. That's the one thing that will keep them from sliding into for example, a Russia kind of situation, or Africa. You know, if if things get bad here, the Chinese people will not tolerate hmm. mediocrity. Well, that, that's so I, I, that to me is the most admirable quality. Yeah, I, I've thought for a long time that you know one of the we could talk about the different policy things, the different policies you should adopt and shouldn't adopt, but one of the keys to success for a country is simply wanting it, wanting it more than you want, you know, revenge or wanting it more than you want uh, to be politically correct, simply wanting the prosperity, wanting to advance and to grow. And that will absolutely that will cover up for a lot of other failures. Mr. Japanese businessman comes to China to set up a factory. Do I say, what about Nanjing? Right. No, I say, thank you. Right. Right. (laughs) So, you know, they, maybe that's going to fester in the background. It's going to infect that, that relationship. But bottom line is they want to succeed. And I think they will succeed. I do foresee in the short term some tough times for China. But I think China has nothing but great greatness in its future long term. Well, thanks so much for having me on, uh, for coming on. The, uh, my guest today is Bob Garmong, uh, uh, a teacher and consultant and uh, uh, someone who's lived in China for how many years now? 
Almost 10 years. Almost It'll 10 be 10 years, years in February. Right. So uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me. I am that dreaded thing, the old China hand. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite topics to discuss. I could go for forever, as you know. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Well, maybe we'll do it again sometime uh, as, as more developments come. Uh, sure. If you find this conversation interesting, uh, you can find more ideas and analysis at the Trzinski Letter, trzinskiletter.com. Uh, please follow our YouTube channel, follow our podcast, and of course, you can support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. This is Salon of the Refused. I'm Rob Trzinski. Thank you for listening.